Hey, Radio Survivor Podcast listeners, this is Paul Reesmandel. And uh, before we jump into the show this week, I wanted to point out that uh, this episode is dropping on Giving Tuesday. Giving Tuesday. 2017, and I'd like to ask you to consider helping out Radio Survivor on this day when you help out the uh, various organizations helping to try and uh, make life a little bit better. We are a listener and reader-supported enterprise, so it's folks just like you who help us do what we do. Uh, We can always use more help to maybe go to more conferences, visit more stations, uh, spend more time investigating different issues that affect our ability to communicate, that affect our ability to make and listen to great radio, whether it's internet radio, podcasting, community radio, um, whatever it happens to be, we could use your help. So I'd like to ask you to go check out radiosurvivor.com slash support. You can become a patron. You can subscribe via Patreon and give uh, a small amount every single month to kind of give us a little bit of that extra income to help us pay the bills. Uh, Even as little as a dollar a month helps out greatly. But of course, if you can spare more, that would be great. If you want to make a one-time contribution, you can do so uh, via PayPal. If you can't make a monetary contribution, uh, you can help us by spreading the word. So if if you are listening as a podcast, be sure to to subscribe. Subscribe in, in, in your in Apple Podcasts, if that's what you use, or Stitcher, Overcast, Pocket Cast, whatever application you use to uh, listen, subscribe there. Also, rate Give us some stars, leave a review, because that actually helps the algorithms that various podcast apps use to recommend shows. It, it helps push it up in the rankings. It might expose more people to Radio Survivor. It's just a few things that you can do to help us out. As well, if there's a community radio station that you listen to, maybe you volunteer at or you know about, uh, that you think maybe ought to air Radio Survivor so we can help spread the word of great radio even further and wider, uh, let them know about it and let them know that the show is available for free to any non-commercial radio station pretty much anywhere uh they can have the show we make a special version just for radio make sure that it's completely fcc clean and ready and we'll give that to any station that wants to air it uh, you can learn more about that at radiosurvivor.com slash radio and of course let us know what you think we always want to hear from you um podcast at radiosurvivor.com. I think this is a really important show. Uh, the FCC right now is considering rules to radically change how the internet is regulated. They really could affect things like podcasting and internet radio and community radio on the internet. Um, we, I take that up with Professor Christopher Terry. You've heard from a number of times this fall because he's our go-to expert. Um, and Unfortunately, he doesn't put our fears to rest, but we do have some thoughts on action. So I think this is an important uh, issue and the kind of thing which we really try to stay on top of here at Radio Survivor. So without further ado, let's jump into the show. The future of the Internet and our ability to communicate freely using the Internet. That is the topic today on Radio Survivor. This is the Sound of Strong Communities. My name is Paul Reismandel, and today we're talking with Professor Christopher Terry. He is Assistant Professor of Media Ethics and Law at the Hubbard School of Journalism and Mass Communication at the University of Minnesota. We're going to take the whole hour 
to dive into the FCC's proposal to radically change how the internet is regulated and how we communicate, receive, and transmit information on the internet. So we're just going to dive right in. All right, Chris, uh, you spent a lot of time with us this fall. Very grateful for you taking time out of your busy academic schedule to help me and all the Radio Survivor listeners understand this storm of things happening at the FCC. And and now, just recently, uh, Chairman Ajipai, the chairman of the Federal Communications Commission, he has released his proposal for regulating the internet, or shall we say deregulating the internet. Um, Just to sort of start off here, can you give us just a real quick capsule of what Chairman Pai uh, aims to do with regard to the internet that we all rely upon every day? Sure, and uh, I'm always glad to be here. But uh, in terms of this order, what the draft order is suggesting is that the agency returned to a pre-2015 position where there were no bright line rules on blocking and throttling. And to do that, what they're doing is they're saying that in 2015, when they reclassified broadband as a common carrier service, that that was an incorrect decision and that broadband itself is an information service. Now, that might not sound uh, substantially different, but in legal terms and the provisions that the agency is allowed to apply to providers of those two services, they're night and day. So help, help, us, help us understand this. You, you mentioned that uh, the bright line rules regarding blocking and throttling. So just in sort of like plain language terms, what is blocking and throttling? I mean, they sound like straightforward terms, but maybe – Put it in terms of like what someone experiences as an internet consumer with with those things. Sure, blocking is a provision or anti-blocking provision keeps your ISP, your internet service provider, whether that be Comcast, AT and T, Verizon, whoever you have, from simply keeping you from accessing certain content. So, in hypothetical terms, if you have Comcast, for example, or Verizon. They can keep you from accessing content that competes with their own content. So Comcast has uh, movie and uh, video services that it would prefer that you used essentially their own. And in terms of blocking, they could keep you from accessing things like YouTube or even things as uh, big as Netflix, and they would do that because they would prefer you would consume their own video content. And so, I mean, would they really just block you or would they just say, you know, it costs more to access Netflix or something like that? Well, they can do both. Uh, with the provisions inherent in this new draft order, they would have the choice of doing either or. Blocking in terms of um, the Internet and this entire debate of net neutrality – is part and parcel of the story. Comcast was blocking users in 2006 and seven from internet accessing torrent sites where content was being streamed from. And 
that's part of the story. But to answer your more specific question, Comcast, with these new rules, Comcast and the others, would have the right to block you from any content they didn't want you to have or throttle your access, which is to simply slow down, essentially pinch off the pipe of information and essentially make it harder for you to get at certain content that they didn't want you to have. They could also prioritize that content and essentially make you pay a higher fee to get it. It would sort of be like an a la carte cable package. You would pick and choose the things that you want and you would pay more to have access to those. And so rules were put in place in 2015 by the FCC that gave it the ability, gave the the commission the ability to regulate these things, throttling or blocking, that made it possible for the FCC to tell a Comcast or to tell a Verizon, no, you may not block or throttle a competing service, uh, you know, and we can punish you if, if it turns out you've done that. Why at this moment does Chairman Pai want to basically roll back something that was done just two years ago? Well, his it's a radical change in philosophy at the commission. Tom Wheeler's commission believed that the correct approach for regulation of the internet was to essentially treat all information the same. You pay a monthly fee to your ISP that gives you the ability to access the internet, and then your internet provider essentially acts as a conduit between you and information and websites and services and apps that you wanted to see online. That's one approach. The alternative approach, of course, is the one that Pi is about to employ where he says, we don't need any of these rules. These rules are burdensome on the ISPs and on competition. And if we got rid of them, magic unicorns are going to bring us a more competitive internet. I'm sorry to have interjected (laughs) my point of view there, but that's essentially the argument that they're making. They're making the they're essentially arguing that if we don't tell ISPs how to manage the traffic, it will somehow work out that they'll manage the traffic better than they're managing it. It just assuming that you, as the consumer, get to make the choice about the information that you are uh, desiring to access, and that your ISP is allowed to charge you a monthly fee to access that that content, the content of your choice. And you mentioned that uh, circa 2006, 2007, Comcast had been caught red-handed blocking certain types of internet traffic uh, for its customers, something which uh, it had not disclosed it was doing, right? Someone had to discover that it was happening. Is this just a one-case kind of situation? Is just this the one time that this has happened in that, that, you know, are there other examples of, of internet service providers throttling or blocking certain types of content? Yes, there's quite a few actual examples of it. Often it's not so much blocking you from content per se, but also blocking you from competing services. There's been phone companies that provide internet access that have blocked uh, VOIP, voice over internet protocol, uh, competing phone systems. That's been a problem in the past. There's been a problem where competing apps and applications have been blocked. Uh, there was a situation where AT&T was blocking Apple uh, apps in the past. It's not isolated to Comcast. But Comcast has the historical importance of having launched the timeline onto which we are, 
now find ourselves now just uh, 50 days away from where we when we're recording this. So what do you mean by launching the timeline? Okay. So in uh, 2005, in August of 2005, under Chairman Michael Powell, the FCC released a set of advisory guidelines known as the Internet Policy Statement. The Internet Policy Statement sort of provided some directions to ISPs on how to manage content online. It prevented straight out blocking. It did allow for network management in the form of throttling, but it, it essentially argued that ISPs, internet service providers, shouldn't block consumers from accessing the apps or uh, content or websites that they wanted to access. And it really wasn't the strongest of documents, but a, a well-intended ma- well approach. Powell's argument was is that blocking essentially was an anti-competitive practice and that they wanted to sort of nip that in the bud back in 2005. About 18 months later, uh, in October of 2007, reports start to uh, appear about Comcast and users in many uh, areas where Comcast is the dominant ISP, they begin to report that they're not able to access all of the sites that they want, specifically sites that have torrent technology, which uses a swarm approach rather than sort of a uh, the sort of a peer-to-peer site. Um, Comcast was just outright blocking content to that. Now they issued many public statements saying they weren't do that, but. They were crossing lots of tech geeks that were very clearly demonstrating that it was happening. By January of 2008, the FCC opens an investigation into Comcast's blocking practices, clearly determines that it was going on despite Comcast's protestations till literally the last minute of the investigation. And in August of 2008, the FCC essentially told Comcast to knock it off. There was no fine issued. There was no uh, no sort of sanctions, just sort of a stop or we'll say stop again approach. And Comcast waited just a few days and then walked over to the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals and filed suit against the FCC on this decision. And Comcast did something that's kind of geeky but is pretty easy to explain. They didn't challenge the decision itself. They challenged the FCC's authority to issue the decision in the first place. And that attack on the FCC after the Comcast was exposed for blocking content starts a chain of events that ultimately leads to where we're headed very soon. What happens is the FCC loses the case in uh, the Comcast decision, Comcast v. FCC, And essentially, the Internet becomes the Wild West, right? Anybody can do anything. There are stories. uh, There's a DSL provider where I'm from in Minnesota that was uh, essentially declaring people on uh, high usage rates and then locking them in at $299 a month for a 12-month contract if they went over 50 gigs in a month. All kinds of things happen. So – Although the FCC lost, what happens is is they recognize that there's a need to do something about this. And then in 2010, late 2010, the FCC then issues its open internet order. And the open internet order is the first real provision on net neutrality. Although Comcast's decision is about net neutrality, the 
the first real decision that we have is this open internet order. It had three generic provisions. One, it uh, required that ISPs be transparent in how they manage their network, uh, what the cost of those things were, what kind of performance that you should expect, and any sort of terms of service. It required that ISPs not outright block content on the internet between the ISP and the consumer, and that it had a weird provision that was entirely flexible called no unreasonable discrimination. And that was only applied to uh, fixed broadband operators. But what it essentially did was it gave ISPs the authority to sort of manage their networks in periods of high traffic so that they could they could manipulate things, both uh, speed and download access uh, when there was high traffic in their network. That of course, led to another legal challenge, this time with Verizon as the lead plaintiff. And they waited about the minimum number of days to file suit. Actually, they had filed suit before the rule was in effect, and the first Verizon case is actually thrown out because the rule wasn't actually in effect when they challenged it. A couple years later, the rules are still in effect for three years, but a couple years later, in January of 2014, we get a decision from the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeal. There's a really important element to this decision. One, it essentially repeats the Comcast decision, saying that the FCC lacked the authority to operate in the way that it was trying to operate. But it also included a really important provision, that it allowed the FCC, or it suggested, the D.C. Circuit suggests to the FCC that if the FCC wants to apply net neutral principles like it's trying to apply in the 2010 order, it needs to reclassify broadband as a communication service. And that's essentially what happens. But between uh, the decision in Verizon and the 2015 Title II decision, which we'll talk about in a minute, um, we see immediately after the Verizon decision a drop-off in a big internet player's ability to deliver content, and that's Netflix. In February of 2014, just 20 days after the uh, <clears throat> Verizon decision comes down, Netflix is so degraded that it's unusable in most places, and they're actually able to track the speed at which their content is being delivered. And not surprisingly, Verizon, AT&T, and Comcast are all degrading it to the point to where it's basically unusable. So to answer your question, there's been many examples of this. But all of this is a prelude to what happens in 2015 with the Title II decision. And I'm sure that's what we're going to talk about now. Yes, and I am speaking with Professor Christopher Terry from the University of Minnesota. We are talking about network neutrality. We are talking about the internet and the FCC's recent proposal to radically alter how it does and does not uh, regulate what you and I can get on the internet from our internet service providers. This is Radio Survivor. 
the Sound is Strong communities. My name is Paul Reismandel, and we'll have some show notes uh, to help you follow up on many of the things that we're talking about here in this interview. Go to radiosurvivor.com slash podcast, and you'll be able to see those show notes. Okay, Chris, so we're here uh, now going to 2015. The D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals has decided that the FCC can't regulate blocking and throttling on content uh, because of the particular regulatory environment, but suggests to the FCC that, it re- that if it reclassifies internet service, home internet service, business internet service that, that we all subscribe to as a, a uh, telecommunication service under a provision known as Title II, then this sort of regulation, this sort of consumer protection regulation would be legitimate. It would be constitutional. And that's that's what this D.C. Circuit tells the FCC. So what does the FCC do then? Well, they launch another proceeding immediately after the Verizon case. And it looks like for a fair amount of time that the decision that we will ultimately get will look much like the decision that we had had in 2010, just with a few new arguments about why the FCC had that authority. But it's about this time that uh, lots of people got very interested in the issue. Um, You have the John Oliver uh, episode, but you also have a really interesting event occur, a historical event in which some protesters showed up at Tom Wheeler's apartment outside of his house, essentially, and had a pro-net neutrality uh, rally. And that's Tom Wheeler, the the then chairman of the Federal Communications Commission. Yeah, Right. And that plus about 4 million public comments in support of Title II, many of which are triggered by the John Oliver's uh, broadcast. Right, and John Oliver has a show on uh, HBO, called, called uh, Last Week Tonight, but uh, in addition to being on HBO, I believe that it caught fire on YouTube, right? They, they put yeah, his rant on YouTube and more people got to understand, which he broke down really what was going on in very simple terms. Well, he advocates very strongly for strong internet service uh, regulation in there, and his argument is fairly convincing, and it goes viral very quickly, and lots of the edge providers are very excited to see Oliver sort of carry the carry the torch for them and ultimately it culminates with a three to two vote uh, implementing Title II regulation, essentially declaring uh, broadband under common carrier status as a communication service like your old POTS telephone, plain old telephone system telephone, um, essentially treating it under Title II provisions, which means that providers can't uh, engage in content discrimination. You pay, you connect, you get the content that you want. That's how your old phone, your old wall, uh, phone on the wall phone was regulated for years and years and years. And essentially that's the provisions without getting too geeky, too down the geeky road. That's how the internet was regulated under the 2015 rule. Now, much like the other rules, the 2015 rule was also challenged in court. But unlike what happened in Comcast v. FCC and Verizon v. FCC, the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals upheld the Title II decision and not only upheld it, but also upheld it on an end bank full uh, full court review by not 
undermining the first decision. So Title II as an internet regulation scheme has been deemed constitutional and valid not once but twice in the courts. And what that means is that the FCC is actually going to war here over this to overturn a rule that the courts just declared to be just fine. So – and, and to kind of put this in perspective, right, the D.C. Court of Appeals, this is the uh, appeals court that hears most uh, challenges to various regulations made by all sorts of government agencies, whether it's the Federal Trade Commission, EPA, etc. And it, so this is a court that, you know, hears lots and lots of sort of technical uh, government regulatory questions. You know, and is I think there may be some people who go, well, isn't this isn't this a liberal court? Isn't this an activist liberal court here? You know, isn't that an argument that a lot of uh, folks would make, especially maybe ISPs? <laughs> uh, well, I think ISPs would make that, but the FCC doesn't see the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals as liberal. I've had some trolls on my Twitter feed actually claiming that the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals is fairly liberal. But uh, as someone who pays attention to these things, I'm not sure that's the word I would use to describe that court. What would you, how would you describe the court? Balanced. Yeah. Um, the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals' primary uh, jurisdiction is to review agency decisions. And much like the process under which agency decisions are made, the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals is bound by the Chevron decision, which then dictates how they review those decisions. And that's the Supreme Court decision, the Chevron decision. Yeah. I don't want to go too far sure, down no, that but road, that's, but it's, essentially it's, – It's helpful for people to understand, I think, that you know there's this long line of precedent, but these things just don't sort of drop out of the sky and, uh, you know, and that – in this process, and maybe a lot of people do understand, but it's helpful to sort of remind that a decision at an appeals court, if it gets challenged again, right? If if uh, uh, you know a Verizon or any other actor wants to appeal that decision, the next step is the Supreme Court. It's the last step. It, yeah, it's and, the next step, it's, and it's the last step. It's really the. I mean, the only way something happens after the Supreme Court is that if Congress reissues a delegation to the agency to do something different, then the agency has to follow that and the process starts over. But cases that happen in the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals only go to the Supreme Court on novelty. But part of what's happening here, I think, is an important discussion. The D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals looked at what the FCC tried to do in 2010, told them they couldn't do it the way they were trying to do it. But they could do it if they reclassified broadband. They say that very clearly in the Verizon decision. So that's what the FCC ultimately chooses to do. And when that case is that decision is then tested in the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, not once but twice, the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals thinks that the FCC acted within its jurisdiction to do so. That's an important reality. Because the U.S. Telecom case, the case in which it upholds the 2015 uh, decision, the Title II decision, is on appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court right now. And there are many, many interested parties in that case. Now, the court has not decided whether or not it will hear that appeal. But one thing that's important to understand about what the FCC is doing here is the FCC is on solid legal ground with the rule that's in effect today. The FCC does not like – the current FCC does not like the solid legal ground it's on. And 
although I've heard very little discussion of this, if this case does get heard by the Supreme Court, we will get some idea on whether or not this is an entirely constitutional provision or not. It would seem to make sense to me as someone who pays attention to these things, and anyone who's listened to this program for any length of time has heard me talk about the FCC and the courts substantially. It would seem to me that this is being rushed. Why not just wait to see how the Supreme Court acts? The Supreme Court might not hear the case. That is a distinct possibility. They may not grant Sertori in the case. They would not hear a review of the U.S. telecom case. Then you would have an answer. And the answer or, would be that it would be uphold, held, right? It would if, be if, upheld. Yeah. It would be a legal decision by the FCC. You would also have a decision uh, if the court were to hear the case and then uh, issue a decision. You'd have a decision that ultimately upholds what the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals did, or you would have a decision from the Supreme Court that would overturn what the FCC had done, and then you'd start to be back to square one. We're maybe two years out from that decision. I'm, I'm failing to see what the rush is here, except for my sort of cynical FCC gene that I've developed over the last 20 years of studying the agency, is that the only possible explanation for what the agency is trying to do here is really they're afraid they might win this case. If the court grants a hearing in U.S. telecom, it is distinctly possible that the FCC could win on Title II, and then it would sort of be stuck without Congress acting. That would be problematic for what the majority of the FCC has appeared to appeared ready to do, and it does explain a lot of the rush on this. Could the FCC just choose not to defend its own rules in court? Could they just say, if, if, if the Supreme Court were to grant certiorari, uh, could they just simply say, no, but we're not coming to court. That's all right. <laughs> well, that's that's part of what they're doing by trying to ram this through now is they're trying to make the issue moot in front of the Supreme Court. So the Supreme Court won't take up the case. It's more complicated than that. Yes, they can choose not to defend the rule that's within their jurisdictional authority. But that decision itself is then subject to a legal challenge of its own so 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 someone could file suit uh, someone who is uh, an interested party uh, the wanting to defend uh the this particular regulatory regime of the internet uh could say hey no you need to defend this in court so it just would just deepen the sort of legal morass the fcc would find itself in right and one thing i i don't see uh that the fcc has handled although you if you believe the rhetoric in the wall street journal and other places that it's flying fast and furious this week is that the FCC doesn't appear to be on solid legal ground with the decision that it's making. It's problematic and is going to end up in court one way or the other. It seems logical to me to play out where we are today as opposed to complicate the matter substantially. In real terms, there's going to be multiple legal challenges to this from either side, and it's probably going to delay the implementation of this order uh, to some degree. Now, what that looks like, um, that's a coin flip in a lot of ways. But the reality is by doing what the FCC is doing, instead of allowing the case to work its way through the Supreme Court one way or the other, they're actually probably complicating the legal arguments uh, down the road and delaying the implementation of these changes. 
So we're talking about network neutrality here. We're talking about the regulation of the internet so that uh, end consumers, people like me, people like Professor Christopher Terry, who I'm talking to, just about all of us, uh, can access the things that we want to on the internet without it being either throttled, slowed down artificially, or being blocked altogether. And uh, the FCC's chairman, Chairman Ajit Pai, recently released a uh, basically a policy proposal uh, that is on the docket to be voted on by the FCC commissioners, of whom there are five in December, uh, greatly proposing great deregulation compared to what uh, we've enjoyed for the last uh, just two years, as as Chris has explained to us. And I am talking with Professor Christopher Terry. He's a professor at the University of Minnesota. He's the person we talk to uh, frequently to help us untangle all of the intricacies of what goes on in the FCC. And very importantly, what Chris has been able to do for us is to give us his historical perspective. Because again, these, as I said sort of earlier, these things just don't drop out of the sky. Uh, even even if there's a, uh, a radical proposal to really change things, the FCC still has to sort of make an argument based upon precedent that, you know, that, that, that actually takes into account how we got to where we are. And I think it's a great place to kind of pick this up here, Chris, uh, you know, in talking about this particular proposal that, that, uh, that uh, Commissioner Pai has has put forward because you just sort of said that that you you think it's sort of on shaky legal ground. Can you kind of expand on why why you think so? Well, there's multiple angles to it, but the the most straightforward one is how the FCC is handling the docket itself. When an administrative agency has decides on a rule or enforcement of a rule. It creates a, a record of that. We call that a docket. The docket then includes all of the comments, empirical evidence, uh, other filings. It, it's a complete record, a rulemaking record. And notably in this rulemaking record, there are 22 million plus comments. And the FCC uh, is essentially arguing and did so last week publicly and also in the document that it is circulating that of these 22 million comments, only a fraction are worth debating. Uh, they're only a, a fraction of those are valid. And essentially they're ignoring all of them unless the comment itself makes a specific legal argument. Then it's addressing those. But it's leaving the rest, probably as many as 12 to 15 million public comments, unaddressed in a record. That choice, which is helping them make the decision that they're ultimately making, is arbitrary and capricious on its face. And I think could overturn the entire order on review just on that simple premise. So what you're basically saying is that in this particular uh, proposal, uh, Chairman Pai – uh, is saying, well, we don't really like these comments, so <laughs> they go into the into the reject pile, <laughs> and well, and I, we like these comments, and we're going to hold on to them. 
Well, they can't ignore the ones with the legal arguments. That is absolutely arbitrary. So, so these ones that they're choosing to ignore, then these are sort of comments that someone might have said. Uh, uh, more of a lay person, your average everyday person, might have seen John Oliver's uh, television show and written uh, a quick one saying, "Look, I don't want you to throttle my internet. Like I rely on the internet every day for for so many different things, and I don't want Verizon, Comcast, AT and T to uh, block me from getting things. Thank you very much." You know, sincerely, John Q. Public. Right. Those are the kind of comments that uh, they want to kind of count out. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. And that's an important part of this because at its very core, net neutrality is a consumer protection uh, regulation. I mean, it protects you from uh, interference with your usage of the Internet or services or content of your choice by your ISP. Now, the agency is sort of justifying this, saying there was lots of multiples of comments. People filed multiple times. Uh, You know, there was lots of automated campaigns. But I don't know that that matters. Uh, When we go back to media ownership, the thing that I come on to talk about the most, uh, the courts have specifically addressed that when there's a volume of comments, even a fraction as many as are in this docket, but they weigh heavily on one side, the agency has to account for that. And the agency's way of accounting for it in this decision is also to essentially just say, well, we can't make heads or tails of this. There's too many. There's lots of duplication. There's lots of automated comments. So we're just going to simply address only the ones that have a legal argument and sort of ignore this quantitative mass of other comments. And I don't know that that's going to fly when this goes on judicial review. But there's a there's a bigger legal issue, I think. At the same time, the FCC is claiming that it didn't have the authority to do what it it did in 2015. That's essentially the majority's argument here is that this is overburdensome and we didn't really have this authority. The court disagreed with them on that, by the way, but that's what the agency is now arguing. They're also extending their authority to block state and municipal rules that would ensure net neutrality or increase broadband access. So at the same time, the the agency is arguing that it doesn't have authority on one side of this. It is arguing that its federal authority trumps any state or local decision making on broadband deployment or broadband usage at the state level. That's a really novel legal argument. We can't say one thing, but we can say something else because it fits in with our program here. How are they justifying that? How is the FCC justifying the fact that it says, on the one hand, we, our agency does not have the authority to regulate the Internet such that we can guarantee uh, consumers will receive the actual data and content they want to get, on the one hand, and on the other hand says, we can't do that, and, and neither can the state of Minnesota or neither can the municipality of Chicago uh, demand that the internet service providers that work within their states or cities or counties, which often, you know, have regulatory agreements with (laughs) these companies, right? They work with the local government, state governments, county governments and such. They can't do it either. How are they, how are they squaring that circle? How are they, how are they resolving that paradox? Well, on the back half of the circle, their argument is is that their federal jurisdiction over interstate commerce and communication technology gives them the ability to preempt state law. 
That's a not a horrible legal argument. I'm not sure it it necessarily flies, given that a lot of this area of law relies on cable law from the 1970s. But the on the front end of the circle, they're essentially arguing that a decision made in 2005, the Brand X decision, was a decision about cable, essentially is the proof that they don't have the authority to to do what they're what they're doing. The FCC's basic argument, without getting too far down the admin law geek path, is that what the commission did in 2015 wasn't legal. And as I've pointed out, the court disagrees with the FCC on that, but that's essentially the majority's argument, that what Title II does and the powers that it gives to the FCC aren't legal powers. Lots of the people who are out promoting this decision this week, sort of the The FCC proposal, yeah. Yeah, are sort of relying on this idea that the FCC acted illegally. But as I pointed out earlier, the courts that have reviewed this decision and the action by the FCC not once but twice have said it was perfectly legitimate. And it was even suggested by the court as a solution to the problem when the FCC had lost by not taking this approach two times before. So it's a pretty hard circle to square. And it's it's one or the other. You can't overturn the state provisions with authority that you say you don't have. That that alone, I think, is enough to remand substantial portions of this back, which is why I think that the FCC is creating a more complicated legal mass for itself than it it's essentially intending to do. Now, Ajit Pai and I disagree philosophically, but he's not he's not an unintelligent man. And he's got to see what he's creating here. I don't know why they're acting in the way that they are. There's, you can get to the outcome that they want a lot easier than the approach that they're taking. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, and, I mean, I, 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 I'm a little scared to ask you how they would do that. I, I putting the instruction manual out there. Um, you know, part of me wonders watching this go down here from my perch that I wonder if, if, and a cynical part of me wonders if this isn't just a move on the part of a GPI in particular, but the Republican majority at the FCC to be able to just simply argue down the line, like, look, we did what you wanted us to do. Like, we can't help it if the courts are going to overturn it or whatever. And so they're just taking, they're just shoving it out the door, right? In a way that instead of sort of writing something which has the greatest chance of success, they're writing something which has the greatest chance of getting out the door and they're just going to let the let the, the the courts figure it out let the ISPs and the public interest advocates duke it out in the courts so that they can sort of declare kind of hey look we tried you know that's sort of my cynical side of me sort of sees that because it seems to also measure up with some other uh philosophies and, and, and actions we've seen by the Trump administration in terms of executive orders, which seem to be uh, sort of hastily written, if you will, and pushed out the door so that uh, the president can claim, uh, look, I did it. Look, I said I do it. I did it. Uh, it's those activist judges that, you know, who are who are blocking the will of the people and, and blocking me from doing what it is I want to do. Uh, I mean, do you think that could all be, be what's happening here? 
Well, I, I think that might be an oversimplification of what the FCC is trying to do. The I FCC hope so. is trying to, <laughs> well, I mean, in, in practical terms and to set my own ideology aside, what the FCC is trying to do here is get all of their marbles into one bag at the same time. And there's a lot better ways to get all the marbles. It's that you play the game and you, you piece one marble at a time and you start adding to your stash. And that's really what the FCC, it's, it's like it needs instant gratification here. It's got to, it's got to grab all the marbles and run away from the table. Somebody's going to chase them down, right? It's, it's, it's not, not the best approach. There's an incremental approach where they could start to whittle away at some of the Title II protections through waivers or forbearance or different provisions that the agency could do very simply that would be a lot harder to win on individually. And, and you're saying and like by waivers and forbearances would be sort of taking things on sort of a case-by-case basis and saying, well, maybe this is okay. Yeah, I mean, the the argument there would be that the FCC would then retain jurisdiction over the enforcement of these things. So you 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 know, you play it out in role-playing way, you get a case where one of the ISPs is blocking people from certain types of content, you adjudicate that and then you say, well, you know, there's some issues with whether or not that content is all legal and you, you know, on a case-by-case basis, you you can you can make chips away at these things one at a time and essentially get to the outcome that you want but the fcc has chosen not to do that but it's chosen not to do that in such a way that it is literally giving up its authority here and is hoping that the federal trade commission will take over enforcement of these provisions and the only provision that the fcc is essentially retaining from its current and last couple tries at regulation of the internet uh uh, regulation of the internet between you and your internet service provider is transparency. They're essentially telling ISPs with this new set of rules, you can do whatever you want to consumers as long as you tell them that you're doing it. And that's about as far as they can go in terms of rolling these things back. But what they're doing there is essentially abdicating their responsibility as the agency that's in charge of our communication and pushing it over to the Federal Trade Commission. Now, how that would work in theory is that the Federal Trade Commission would hold cable companies and ISPs to the provisions that they set. So Comcast says, we're going to block you from torrent sites, but then they block you from other forms of peer-to-peer sites. That would be a deception in the standard of transparency and then would be enforceable under the Federal Trade Commission's deception standard under their Section 5 authority. However, that's a good theory, but the Federal Trade Commission has never actually done that kind of enforcement. Uh, There are actually zero cases of enforcement against uh, cable companies for that kind of thing. It's It's novel, right? But they're shooting for the moon here with a lot better ways to achieve this. So let's uh, take a step back here and kind of uh, review what's at stake because I think that's always important to try and understand and and, and try you know put it into into sort of everyday terms. Uh, we're talking about network neutrality here. This is Radio Survivor, the sound of strong communities. My name is Paul Reismandel. I'm your host for this episode. We're talking to Professor Christopher Terry. He's from the University of Minnesota. He helps us break down. What's going on at the FCC? He's been visit, visiting with us quite a bit. We're very happy. We're very thrilled that he's willing to take the time. 
Uh, and the reason he's been here a lot is because the FCC's made it a very busy fall, uh, first proposing uh, radical changes to media ownership rules, which he recently helped us untangle, um, and now uh, proposing radical changes to how our internet service is is regulated and and that has uh, the potential to change what you and I can get and see on the internet and and to some extent how we pay for it. So one of the there's kind of an example I've seen floating around now on the internet as a meme, and it's this screenshot of internet service in Portugal, where the sort of different tiers of service are broken down in the same way we're, we're accustomed to seeing our cable TV broken down where, you know, in, where we might see if you're buying cable TV, you get package one, it gives you your local channels, maybe package two gives you your local channels, you get ESPN and CNN and package three throws in HBO and things like this, right? You pay not quite a la carte, but, but you get different packages of different channels depending on how much you want to pay a month. And this particular uh, meme I've seen you know, says it shows this uh, internet service provider in Portugal saying, "Okay, well, tier one, uh, you can watch Netflix, and then tier two, uh, you know, will also include Spotify." Right? Uh, treating the services that you and I in the United States right now can just, you know, we can go to wherever we want to. We can go get Spotify on our phones. We can we can subscribe to anything that's available to us. Instead, sort of making more of a pick and choose what you get. Um, is that is that uh, is that a real example? Is is that really happening elsewhere in the world? Is my my first question and my second question? Could that happen here? Uh, yes, on both accounts, actually. Um, now, to be fair, I think that's a worst case scenario uh, in terms of what the packages will look like uh, here. I don't think it'll be quite that simple. Because that's going to put a lot of pressure on the same companies to do something similar with cable, something that they've been reluctant to do for some time. That said, uh, what you see in that Portugal model, and that graphic is actually quite old. It's from 2014, the one that floats around pretty regularly. But that's an entirely possible outcome where you would pay a certain amount of money to access a certain group of websites, that you would ax- you would pay a certain amount of money to access um, – a, you know, a social media stream, you'd pay a certain amount of money. And what so to be, you'd have to pick and choose. You wouldn't just be able to go online and look at Pandora.com. You would have to pay the fee to use Pandora through your internet browser. More problematically, I think, is the reality that many of the people that provide internet service ISPs, many of the people that provide internet service, also have stakes in some of the edge providers, like the relationship between Verizon and Yahoo. Verizon could simply state that Google is not Google search is not available to you without a fee and force you to use Yahoo instead. And that and right now cuz Verizon owns Yahoo. Right. And I mean that's part of this story is that you have a lot of these ISPs also involved in other forms of content systems and they're going to have an economic incentive to push you into platforms and content that they already own as opposed to delivering you content from their competitors. And that's where you're going to see the big change. Let's take an easy one. Comcast has, for the longest time, wanted to be the number one provider of sports in the United States. It's done a lot to make that happen. Its purchase of NBC gave it access to NBA basketball and NHL hockey. It has made lots of deals to get at individual 
uh, baseball contracts, and you know it's gone after uh, soccer and other other sports, and it really wants to put ESPN out of business. One thing that could legitimately happen is that Comcast cable providers will have to pay a fee, essentially, to access ESPN.com. That's, I mean, that's not hyperbole. It's reality. Comcast has a, a variety of sports-oriented web material that it would like you to use instead, and it will make that essentially free with your internet service package. But if you want to access alternative content, content that they do themselves do not own and profit from the advertising on, they're going to charge you a fee for that. And we worry about community media here on Radio Survivor. And certainly radio and podcasting are two things we, we, we are greatly concerned about. But it also includes public access television and includes, I think, a lot of kind of community media that is done in video and on other platforms on the internet. Uh, so not necessarily strictly only coming through like a public access forum. But my question is, you know, much of the focus has been on video because video takes up a lot of bandwidth, is more expensive, uh, requires more of the commodity of the internet to transmit. Um, and so often, you know, radio and podcasting don't really come up in these net neutrality discussions. And, you know, many folks think, well, you know, it's, it's too much of a rounding error. It's too kind of, you know, uh, doesn't take up enough bandwidth. Isn't that important? It won't, it, it may not be, uh, subject to throttling and blocking in the same way that we expect that maybe a high bandwidth video service would be. I mean, do you think that that's, uh, that people who care about podcasting, who care about internet radio, care about community media online, can sort of let out a little breath of release, and we're just too small to be to to be bothered with by the likes of a Comcast or a Verizon, or do you think there's a legitimate worry there? Well, I understand the argument that we're all too small to do to be worried about, but my counter argument and the one that makes me have a little pause about the first argument is that you're talking about companies that have been bad public players for a long time. Comcast, Verizon, AT&T, they've all, they've all been bad companies, right? They're terrible customer service companies. They always rate in the, in the worst uh, of surveys for, for customer service. So the FCC is making a deal with people who've essentially admitted that they're going to do things to us because they can't. When Verizon was arguing in oral arguments in the Verizon case, it came up whether or not Verizon would simply block or alter access to content if they had the opportunity to do so. And they, their lawyer said that they, he, she was authorized to admit that Verizon only wasn't doing that because they were afraid of the rule that had been in effect at that point. And she didn't just say that one time during oral argument. She said it six times. So these companies have have gone on the record and said that they're going to do these kinds of things and that they're expecting the power to do that. You have to think that that filters down all the way to the bottom, even to us smaller people on the Internet and the sort of local things that we do. Comcast, Verizon, AT&T, Spectrum, these are all national companies with their own content production arms. They're really going to want you to look at the stuff that they're they're offering as opposed to their competitors. And is it possible that these big 
big companies that are getting bigger, whether it's your Verizon or your Comcast, might get in to the podcasting or radio game. I, I, the way I look at it is, is, is it, could it be possible that iHeartMedia, right, the nation's largest owner of radio stations and a big player in internet radio, and now trying to uh, make itself a bigger player in podcasting through its iHeartRadio app. Um, it, you know, it's 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 in debt up to its eyeballs. <laughs> it seems to me could be a fire sale, and that could be the kind of company that uh, a Comcast or a Verizon might want to add to its portfolio, giving it, you know, some access to, uh, you know hundreds of stations and thousands of different channels of audio content. Do you think that's an outside kind of fear? Or do you think that there's a potentiality there? No, I think it's a extremely realistic fear, especially given what the FCC is doing on media ownership on the side of what's going on with net neutrality. Comcast has already, it's already come out that Comcast is looking at further acquisitions beyond its NBC properties. It's likely, I mean, there's going to be a war for content soon. I mean, uh, that's that's coming. That's the the media industry battle that's coming is a war for what content you have control over. And that's going to be a bigger deal if these rules are put into place and upheld on review is that the content that you own is going to give you an advantage against your competitors. Right. You're going to be able to charge more to your competitors for content that people want. And you're going to be able to use your ability to quickly access and cheaply access certain types of content as a way to attract customers. That's a extremely anti-competitive approach, but that's the road that we're heading on. The FCC's answer to this sort of claim, the one that I'm sort of explaining now, is that don't worry, the Federal Trade Commission won't be able to handle that. Uh, I'm, I'm skeptical on that point. I mean, that's kind of, I mean, that's kind of my fear. And my fear is that, you know, a Comcast decides to buy an iHeartMedia, the largest owner of radio stations. And then maybe Verizon dips in and buys Cumulus, the second largest owner of radio stations that's in even more troubled financial circumstances than iHeart is. But each with, you know, substantial, uh, you know, internet radio holdings. And that for your community radio station, you know, that the, the situation could be, well, you know, if you want to be able to reach the listeners in your area via the Internet, uh, you're going to have to play ball with an iHeartMedia app, right? And, I mean, these days, you know, iHeart is, is welcomes new stations on, you know, fairly liberally. It's in that kind of stage. But how long will that gate be open? And, you know, I can understand many community radio stations or many uh, independent radio stations of all different sorts don't necessarily want to be in bed with iHeart for all sorts of reasons. But could that be then the gate closes and it becomes a situation where um, your listeners in your community who may want to listen to your signal on the internet uh, can't or, you know, have to pay for an extra tier that says, all right, if you want to listen to any online audio that's not iHeart or not Cumulus or not from a, a particular approved platform, that's going to be the next tier up in your radio. That's the, that's the fear I kind of have. And, you know, <sighs> <laughs> Two years ago, I'd have thought that that was fantastical thinking, <laughs> that I was being paranoid. But when combined now with the FCC's uh, getting rid of cross-ownership rules, right, uh, getting rid of uh, rules that, that, uh, that restrict cross-ownership of radio and television and, and radio, and, or in radio and, and, and newspapers, I start thinking, oh, my gosh, you know, this, this sort of stacked oligopoly situation 
just isn't so fantastic. I was hoping you would talk me out of it, Chris. <laughs> no, I'm afraid I can't do that, Paul. It's a, <laughs> it's a realistic – I mean it's a realistic concern and it's why people like me have been pointing at what the FCC has been doing for the last uh, – you know, nine months here and have some real significant concerns that if you take it as a whole, that it looks very clear like they are going to do a massive round of consolidation that's going to eliminate lots of voices from the public sphere. And that's a problem because by losing its regular, by sort of giving up its regulatory authority, you're removing the First Amendment from the equation. You don't have a First Amendment defense against Comcast, Verizon, AT&T, or others blocking your speech or your access to speech. There's no First Amendment defense against that because you're borrowing their pathway to do that communication. Comcast doesn't like what you have to say, say the fact that we've been criticizing Comcast for almost 58 minutes now. They can simply block us from being able to do that when these rules are put into place. That's a, that's a problem. We'll have to leave it there. Professor Christopher Terry from the University of Minnesota, thank you so much for joining us. And I'm sure we'll be catching up after uh, the FCC makes its fateful vote in December. I hope so. I, I'd like to come on and talk about something fun for a change one of these times. But, uh, <laughs> well, let's, let's make that plan, Chris. <laughs> all right. We'll talk to you soon. Professor Christopher Terry and I talked on Friday, November 24th, the day after Thanksgiving and just three days after Chairman Pai released his net neutrality proposal. After we talked, Chris let me know that the FCC had also asked the Supreme Court for an extension on replying to the U.S. Telecom versus FCC case. That's the Internet Service Provider's challenge to the open Internet rules that the Commission passed in 2015, which we talked about and which resulted in the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals upholding them as constitutional. Now, the Commission was supposed to respond to this uh, challenge to bring it to the Supreme Court by December 4th, which is 10 days before the planned vote on Chairman Pai's proposal to undo net neutrality rules, which is scheduled for December 14th. Now the FCC is asking for an extension until January 3rd of 2018, which is after the three Republican commissioners are likely to vote to end net neutrality protections, as Chris explained. I also asked Chris about what the average concerned citizen can do. He emphasized the importance of actually contacting congressional representatives. Not necessarily now the FCC since those comments are filed and have been paid attention to or ignored. So contact Congress, your congressional representatives. And if you're concerned about this dismantling of network neutrality protections, he suggests you can support public interest groups that are working to hold the FCC accountable. Groups like Free Press, Public Knowledge, Fight for the Future, or the ACLU. We'll have links to all these groups and to many of the things we talked about on this particular episode of the show in our show notes, radiosurvivor.com slash podcast. This is episode number 118. Please let us know what you think. If you have any concerns or questions or comments about anything on the show, send them to us, podcast at radiosurvivor.com. To learn how you can help Radio Survivor keep going, go to radiosurvivor.com slash support. My name is Paul Reismandel, and I really appreciate you listening. Thank you. <laughs>